a portion of our service where we uh, read God's word once again together, and then we'll uh, turn to the Lord, um, hearing from his word and, and our sermon. Uh, the scripture reading, you can find that on page 7 of your bulletins, is going to be from 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. The context of this psalm, if this sounds familiar, it's the exact same scripture reading we had last week, or at least a part of it, um, where we're going to see David both in Psalm 34 that we looked at last week, as well as in Psalm 56 that we look at this morning, have the same event elicit a couple of different um, uh, psalms and a couple of different meditations and fresh calling out to the Lord uh, in his life. The context of this uh, psalm, if you weren't here last week, so King Saul um, has uh, been rejected by the Lord as king, king, and David has been anointed as the next king. Uh, Saul does not take that well. Saul is out to get David. He doesn't want uh, the Lord's will to be done in this, and so he is hunting David. Uh, David many, if not all, in this room, uh, this Philistine warrior from a town called Gath. David uh, uh, slays him, which only causes Saul's jealousy to grow. And so Saul is out to get David. David is fleeing from Saul. He's on the run for his life, even grabs a sword in a town nearby, which happens to be Goliath's sword, and then goes into Gath, carrying the sword of this Philistine warrior that he has slain straight back into the teeth of the enemy. And we will see what happens here uh, in 1 Samuel 21, our sister Savannah Minnick is going to come and read this portion of scripture for us. Uh, and we see th this, uh, this event of David fleeing for his life, going back into the hands of the enemy um, and, and what transpires there. 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 22, 2. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do ask for your help now as we turn to your word. God, you have wonderful things in your word by which you would instruct us and encourage us and help us. We pray for that now. We pray that you, by your spirit, would illumine truth to us. Would you help us to see what you would have us to, to understand from this psalm? Would you reveal what your character is like? Would you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, again, if that passage sounds familiar and you were here last week, it should. We read a portion of that in our scripture reading last week. Again, David on the run for his life, fleeing from an insanely furious Saul right into the hands of Achish, king of Gath, whose champion Goliath he had just killed. And as Garrett talked about last week and showed us, he's even carrying Goliath's sword, no less, straight into Gath. And so we see here that his experience there in 1 Samuel 21 and a little bit into 22 as he's hiding in that cave of Adullam, uh, that this experience prompted him to write Psalm 34 and 56. So the same intense event uh, prompts multiple reflections for him, multiple ways in which we need to call out to the Lord and remind ourselves of his faithfulness. I think the same thing is true in our lives. We can have an event that can cause us not just to call out to the Lord once in one specific ways, but in many different ways, trying to think through and process what does it look like to seek the Lord and to call out to him. I take that as an example of the fact that he writes two psalms on this same piece of storyline. And I don't know about you, but the temptation for me in events like this, when we read these in Scripture, is to wonder, how could, how could this apply to me? How can we possibly relate to this? Because if you look at the details of this story, I think few of us in this room, at, in this church at this moment, will relate to a situation like this Right, if you're looking at Scripture and you're saying, okay, okay where, where do I find myself in this? We've got David, uh, who was uh, anointed king. He's got the previous king trying to kill him. He defeats a nation's gigantic champion warrior and finds himself at odds with the king of his own country who wants to murder him, hunting him down. He's on the run. He grabs the slain warrior's sword and heads back into his hometown escaping the, 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 the jaws of defeat there by Saul right into the hands of another group of people who want him dead. In order to escape, he acts like he's insane. He's drooling all over himself. He barely makes it out of there, and now he's hiding in a cave. Anybody been there? I don't think so. So we read these, and we look at this, and we're like, how could this possibly relate? But here's how I think we need to think about this in order to frame it helpfully for us. Don't think David's intense experience has no analog in my life. Therefore, it's, it's not applicable. Rather, think, if I can understand, if I can wrap my mind around, if I can grasp onto how David made it through that, then that will have massive import for how I can get through my stuff. Right? So, so not, this is so far away from me that, that this couldn't possibly apply to me, but think, man, if the Lord can carry him through that, which I can't even imagine, well, then how he carry me through stuff that I very well can imagine, the pressures and the pains and the trials and the struggles that I go through in my life. If I can get some sort of understanding of how he made it through his fear, his exhaustion, his isolation, his loneliness, his suffocating nature of not being able to come up for air and fleeing from one thing right into the next, if I can understand how he made it through that, then I can very well imagine and deal with and know how to process through when I'm afraid, when I'm exhausted, when I'm isolated, when I feel suffocated, when I feel at my wit's end. And then if I can see how this whole story fits into the grand narrative of Scripture and points me to Jesus bringing the gospel of good, the, the, the good news of the kingdom, then my heart will be stirred in new and fresh ways toward obedience and walking through whatever the Lord would have me in faithfulness. This is what we have to look forward to in Psalm 56. I invite you to turn to Psalm 56 
in your copy of God's Word where we'll see another reflection from David along with Psalm 34 of how he processed through this and how he called out to the Lord in it. What I want to argue from this passage this morning is this. When fear keeps tormenting, God's character helps you to keep trusting. When fear keeps tormenting, and it will, God's character helps you to keep trusting. I think we see this in Psalm 56. I think we see this in our own lives as well. The question then becomes, how are we helped by Psalm 56 to keep trusting? If that's true, God's character helps us to keep trusting when fear keeps tormenting. How are we helped by Psalm 56? I want to give you six ways, six ways from Psalm 56 that we are helped, six things that helped David with his fear, six things about God and his character. God is gracious. God is trustworthy. God is just. God cares. God brings relief, and God delivers. I'll say this once again. I'll, I'll say them again as we go throughout the sermon. God is gracious. God is trustworthy. God is just. God cares. God brings relief, and God delivers. Look at Psalm 56 with me in your copy of God's Word. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept my you have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Number one, God is gracious. The first two verses here in Psalm 56 show the dire circumstances in which David finds himself. Again, he was seized by the Philistines in Gath, and then after he escapes, he makes it to a cave, cave of Adullam, where he is hiding. And we see how he feels here. If you look at your text in verse 1, he says, man tramples on me. That Hebrew word there for trample on me, it could also be translated as pants after me, which is if you have a Bible that's not the ESV that I'm Reading from here, you may have a different translation of that. So New American Standard and Christian Standard both say trample on me. Uh, King James, New King James say swallow me up. 
Or you may have hotly pursue me, if you're looking at an NIV, hotly pursue, again, because that word could be trample on me or pant after me. Regardless, the idea here is that he is attacked. He is pursued. And you see it there in the text. He says it twice here at the beginning, and he says it once later in the text. He says, all day long he is oppressed. All day long, verse 2, he is attacked. You get the sense in David's description of his plight that he is, he is smothered, he is overwhelmed, he is exhausted. He can't seem to come up for air. He can't seem to get a moment of peace. He can't seem to get a moment of tranquility in his life. He fled from Saul and he's right back in harm's way. He makes it out of Gath, but then he's in a cave hiding from those who would seek to kill him. Not just one group of people, but many groups of people. Friends, do you ever feel like that? Exhausted? One thing after another in your life? Just wanting a, a single ray of sunshine? Just wanting one good night of sleep? Just wanting a, a day without the pressure? Just wanting a day without the pain? Just wanting a, a, a month without the memories. Just wanting a season where you don't feel like you're stressed or anxious or overwhelmed. Just, just a breath of air. Just a moment to come above the surface. David knew that feeling. What helped him? God is gracious. God is gracious. David knows that he can turn to him and call out to him because what he needs is grace. Other translations would render this, be merciful to me, O God. Be gracious to me. Be merciful to me. And there's times where we ferret out the distinction between grace and mercy, which can be helpful at times. But either way you render it here, he knows that God has something that he needs that he can't provide of his own. He needs God's mercy. He needs God's grace. He needs God's favor shown to him. He needs God's face to look at him that he knows that he is okay and that everything's going to be all right. That's what he needs. And so he turns to the God, the only source of what he truly needs is God, be merciful to me. That's all I got. A call to you, a cry out in the dark, be merciful, give me mercy, give me grace. That's all I got. He knows the help he needs. God is the only one who can provide it. He needed God's grace, God's mercy, and experience of him turning and showering his favor in a way that would be transformative and life-giving and refreshing to him. And so I ask you, in those seasons where you feel attacked or smothered or exhausted or like you can't come up for air, what is your help? Friends, it's the very same thing. God is gracious. God is merciful. And he delights to shower that on us. He is the one, the only one to whom we can turn for that, the one to whom we must turn. David knew that. David knew that this, was, this is who God is and what he's like. And friends, we have an even better picture of this. We have an even clearer picture of this. Listen to how Paul talks about Christianity. This is in Acts chapter 20 when he talks about the good news of Jesus. Acts chapter 20 Paul says this, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. It's this, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
That's Christianity in a nutshell. That's a summary of what we believe. That's a summary of who we are, that we have good news, gospel, of the grace of God. That what Christianity is all about is that we, as a people who are dead in our sins and helpless, in a worse situation than David, if you can imagine it, on, on the run from multiple people, everybody's trying to kill you, you're hiding in a cave, you're acting like you're crazy, like that's pretty bad. All of us are way worse. We are dead, the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Morally incapable, uh, intellectually incapable, there's nothing we can, doesn't mean we're, we're as bad as we could possibly be at, all, at any given moment. It just means that, that, that we are fallen in all respects. Our intellect, our will, our emotion, our affections, all, all, of, the, all of those things, we're totally fallen in all of those ways. We can't be like, well, I'm really bad morally, but I'm going to think my way to God. Or I can't really figure all this kind of stuff out, but I'll be good enough. No, no, no. We're all dead before God in all of those respects. And yet God sent Jesus to stand in our place as our substitute, taking the death that we deserved, that any of us, by trusting in him and turning to him, might have eternal life. And, and Paul describes that. He says that is grace. That is the premier, ultimate picture of what grace looks like for us to get something that we don't deserve, that we desperately need, that we can't provide on ourselves, and only somebody from outside of us, an alien righteousness, the reformers called it, a righteousness from outside of me that is given to me, credited onto my account. That's our only hope. And the Bible says, friends, that is the grace of God. And so for those of us who are living on this side of the cross, we see a picture of that in Jesus, and we know that this is what life is all about. This is what Christianity is all about. It is about grace. We have a God who is gracious. And so, church, and whatever you, as, as I've, I've been talking so far and mentioning a couple different things, and you feel, man, I feel that in this area of my life. I feel like I can't come for, up for air over here. I feel attacked in this way. I feel exhausted because of this thing. And whatever it is, God has shown you that he has given you his favor in Jesus Christ. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to look for it. You don't need to ask for more of it. He's given it to you. You want to know God's favor and that his face is turned towards you? Look to Jesus. God demonstrates his love for us in this way that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 says. And so God is a God of grace. We have a good news of grace, and he has given that to us in Christ. And he says, you want to know that I care? You want to know that I'm there? You want to know that you can get through whatever it is that you're going through in life? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus. That was my display. And friends, that's what we all need. We all desperately need that truth to look to Jesus Ultimately, to see the gift of the grace of God and to know his favor. We know he is full of grace. We know that he loves and values and cherishes us. And so think about the gospel and the promises therein about who God is and what his disposition is like toward you and about his invitation toward you for a relationship. Church, when fear keeps tormenting, you keep trusting. How? Know that God is gracious. Know that God is gracious. Number two, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Look again at verse three of Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, and God whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Gosh, this, I've got this boxed and underlined and bracketed in my Bible. What a phenomenal section, what a phenomenal promise to clink you. What a phenomenal uh, posture that he takes here. This is what you do with your fears. This right here. This is what we do with our fears. The antidote to fear is trust. It's, it's faith over fear. 
One of my favorite commentators on the Psalms, a guy named Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, says this. Listen to this. Faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. Let me read that again. Faith is seen here as a deliberate act in defiance of one's emotional state. What a great line. Do you see that happening in our text? David is afraid, but contrary to that emotional state, he is choosing faith. He is choosing to trust in God. He's not enslaved to his fears, but chooses deliberately to trust God in the midst of them. Friends, Jesus calls us to such faith. I remember there's a story in in the Gospels in Mark chapter 5 where there's uh, this ruler of the synagogue, a guy named Jairus. His daughter dies, and and, uh, Jesus is there, and and he's calling out to Jesus, pleading with Jesus for help. And some folks actually come out of the house, and they're like, Jairus, like, leave him alone. She's gone. And Jesus turns to the father of of the daughter, and he says, do not fear only believe. That's what David's doing here. Do not fear, only believe. We can carry on in life because we have a God in whom we can put our trust. He is trustworthy. He is faithful. He is worthy of our trust. He is worthy of our faith. He can carry it all. We carry on in life because we put our trust in him. Not only, get it, not only when the fog lifts, but even when the fog settles even when we can't see straight, even when we can't come up for that breath of air, even then we do it. One of my wife's favorite quotes from Elizabeth Elliot, one of her favorite authors, I hear her often use this. She says, sometimes the fear doesn't go and you have to do it afraid. Elizabeth Elliot, sometimes the fear doesn't go and you have to do it afraid. Church, this is what it means to walk by faith. Because God is trustworthy, we know that we can step out into the safety that he provides. We can step out into the safety of his arms and the the security of his will. We won't always pray the fear away and then walk out in full confidence. Sometimes the fear doesn't go and you have to do it afraid. But that doesn't mean you walk forward with nothing. Sometimes in those situations, we don't walk forward with nothing. As the text says here, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. We go with a faithful God. We go with a trustworthy God. With our wills, we trust God even if our emotions are telling us something different. And we choose to march forward knowing that he is trustworthy. And if you look in the very next verse, you'll see for David uh, that the fear is not ruling him. Did you catch that? Verse threes, when, in verse 3, he says, when I am afraid. And then in verse 4, he says, I shall not be afraid. Like in one verse, what a turnaround. He goes from I, I, when I am afraid to I shall not be afraid. In the very next verse, from afraid to a resolution to not be afraid, well, what changed? Did his circumstance change? Did his situation change? Did his cave turn into an all-inclusive resort? Did Saul say, I'm not going to try to kill you? No, it's none of that. It was his deliberate choice to trust. And it's done in light of who God is. Specifically, you can see it there in your text. Specifically, it's God who has given his word and God who is sovereign. 
So God is trustworthy. I'm choosing to walk with him. I'm choosing to trust with him. Well, how, how do I know? How do I do that well? Well, I think in the text, it, first, it's God who has given us his word. You see that in verse four, in God whose word I praise. Not making an idol out of God's word. It's that God has revealed himself. God, the, what we have in this book is God's revelation. God has spoken, wrote through men to pin down his very words. That's what you have here. It's the very words of God. This is all true. It's without error. It's authoritative. And, and, and David says, I, we, I have God's word, his promises that he has given to me, and we have in more full measure. But David says, God's word, and God's word I praise, whose word I praise. He's given us his revelation as a, a, a record of his faithfulness and his trustworthiness. We are meant to read his word and reflect on it and memorize it and hide it in our hearts. We are meant to see his character and allow that all the things we see here, all the things that we find here, all the instances of his faithfulness, all the instances of his trustworthiness, we find a record of that right here, which is why we, we keep reading it over and over again. You ever had somebody see you reading the Bible and be like, haven't you read that thing already? I have. I can't get enough of it because I need it. I need to keep seeing God's faithfulness. I need to keep seeing his trustworthiness so that whenever that thing hits, when that time comes, when that pressure is on you, I, I'm so uh, bathed in this and immersed in this that I have no doubts about who God is and what his character is like. That's what David does. He says, God, you, I, I, he puts his trust in God whose word he praises. And so for us, we are meant to see his character and allow that to build our confidence that he will remain the same. I had a seminary professor who was fond of, of saying this. You, you may have heard this if you've been at Delray a while. Garrett had the same professor, and so maybe you've heard this before. But, but he, he, he would say this. He would say, what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he'll do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. He would say that all the time. Every student who ever took him had this thing memorized. <laughs> what God has done in the past is a model and a promise for what he'll do in the future, though he's too creative to do the same thing the same way twice. Friends, in your own Bible intake, in your own time in God's word, whatever that looks like for you, don't be there just for kind of a spiritual shot in the arm. We'll get that sometimes. There's plenty of times where I'm reading the Bible and I'm, I'm only read, I read a chapter and there's something in there that was, man, that was really helpful. I'm going to dwell on that. I'm going to think about that today. There's other times, I don't know if you've ever been there, where you're reading and you're like, got nothing out of that. <laughs> I just read it, read three chapters. I kind of remember what I read. I, we need all of that. I don't remember every meal that I've ever eaten, but I know they've led to my nourishment over time. And that's what we do when we're reading God's word. We're not just reading it for a spiritual power verse for the day. We read it to constantly immerse ourselves in the story, to constantly remind ourselves of who God is and what he's like, to constantly have that as our, our framework for how we view the world so that when times like this hit, we know without a doubt God is trustworthy. We've seen it in his word. So, so David turns there, but it's not just in his word. It's also his sovereignty. He says, what can flesh do to me? These people who were so scary just a couple verses ago, he sees them as they are their mere mortals. What can flesh do to me? That's a statement of trust in a sovereign and eternal God. 
Now, can, can humans hurt us? Absolutely. Like, David knew that better than us. Like, they can do some real harm. But David knew that, but they can't ultimately hurt us. And they can't do anything that our sovereign God wouldn't allow and give us the grace uh, to endure. And David knows this very well. So in preparing his disciples, Jesus says something very similar. Preparing his disciples for the intense persecutions that would come their way, Matthew chapter 10 Verse 28, he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God has shown us his character and his word. He is sovereign over all and he is trustworthy. It's a helpful exercise in your fears. This sounds a bit morbid. But what's the worst that could happen? Not a rhetorical question. Actually, actually ask yourself in your fears, in your worries, in your anxieties, what's the, what is the thing I'm really afraid of here? What's the worst thing that could happen if that plays out? Is it death? Is it loss of a relationship? Is it turmoil in a friendship? Is it discomfort? Is it pain? Is it fear of man? Is it your reputation? Is it insecurity? Is it being alone? What is the worst thing that can happen? Okay, and then what? Is God still enough? Will he still be right there? Will he still be good? Sometimes it's just helpful to name it and be honest and say, I'm afraid of this. And what I'm really afraid of is it plays out, here's the worst case scenario, and then turn to God and say, God, I know that even if that thing happens, that you will be there and that your character is not called into question and that you're still trustworthy and that I can still walk with you in full faith and full assurance that you will never leave me or forsake me because that's what your word told me. And we do that over and over again. Hebrews chapter 13, I believe it is. Hebrews 13. And this just shows you the, the appropriateness of taking this psalm and applying it in areas of your life. Listen to this. You probably even write that in the margin of your Bible there in, in uh, Psalm 56. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. This section of Hebrews is a number of different kind of concluding comments uh, given to the, the, the people to whom he's writing. But verse 6 says this. Actually, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. So this is just a, kind, of a, kind of a buckshot of Uh, of encouragement and stuff at the end of this book. Here's one that he gives. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with whatever you have. So here's, church, here's something that we need. We are going to be tempted to cling to money, to cling to possessions, to love that, and to be discontent in life. Well, what kind of scripture could we marshal out to fight such fear? Look at the text, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. So he says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our own struggle with, with, uh, with greed and with our, our, uh, our overworking and our idolatry of our jobs and our idolatry of financial security and all those kinds of things. The author of Hebrews says one way to battle that is to remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. So what if you lost it all? God will never leave you or forsake you. Next verse, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear 
what can man do to me? It's a quote either from Psalm 56 or from Psalm 118, or both he has in mind here, the author of Hebrews. And he looks at that text and says, there's this promise in the Old Testament that says, God is my helper and that he will never leave me or forsake me, and I will not fear because what can man do to me? And I'm going to apply that to my finances. (laughs) I'm going to take that truth from the Old Testament, that truth from Psalms, and I'm going to let that govern how I live my life and let that govern my contentment. I can be content in anything. How? Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What can man do to me? What if the worst happens? Friends, that's what, we, that's what we do with these psalms as we're in this series this summer. We look there and we take truths from that and we mine it and then we apply it into our lives. That's exactly what David is doing here. That's what we are meant to do as well. When fear keeps tormenting, you keep trusting. How? Know that God is trustworthy. Number three. God is just. God is just. Verse 5, back in Psalm 56, all day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? And wrath cast down the people's, oh God. So here in Verses 5 through 7, we get another description of the position that David is in. We see our third reference to this all day long, this unrelenting nature of the attacks and the pressure that he's feeling. All day long, they injure my cause. He says they are bent on causing him trouble. One commentator says here that the picture is almost like a, a boxer who is stalking his opponent. Right? He, he's striking, and then he's kind of waiting for another opportunity. And he strikes again, and he waits for another opportunity. He's, he's lurking. He's watching your steps. He's waiting for an opening, and then he's going to take another little shot and then stalk some more and watch his steps. So he, he feels like he is being tracked. So the people are lurking and taking little shots. He says they think evil thoughts. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch his steps. They wait for his life. They are pure evil, and they are set against him. In response, he asks a rhetorical question, I think. Verse 7, for their crime will they escape? I don't think that's an honest question that he doesn't know the answer to. That's a rhetorical question that begs the answer, no. No, he knows the answer to that is going to come in the negative. For their crime will they escape? No, they won't, which is what leads him to pray what he says very next uh, thing. In wrath, cast down the people's, oh God. He knows that God ultimately has this. I'll just say this, for some of us in this room, for some of you, your worst fears have come to pass. Horrible things have happened. Things have been stolen from you. You've been severely wounded. You've lost loved ones. Friends, your pain will not be wasted, and evil will not ultimately win. We are to take comfort knowing that the story isn't over yet, even if the worst happens. The story isn't over yet. And perhaps a corollary to be pointed out is that David knows that God is just and he will act, which allows David to leave the work to him. If you've read the, the, the narrative in, in uh, First and Second Samuel, David's got so many opportunities to kill Saul. So many opportunities, and he doesn't do it. He says, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. He knows that wrath and justice is God's to mete out. So friends, when we're in something scary, we want the pain to be over. We want the fear to end as soon as possible. But the decision is the Lord's, not ours. 
Just as David didn't raise his hand against God's anointed, but he put his trust in God who is just. God will ultimately right all wrongs. You may or may not get to see that in this life. But friends, take heart that you will see it. That God's justice will be done. That the righteous will be rewarded. And that the wicked will be punished. When fear keeps tormenting, you keep trusting. How? Know that God is just. Number four, God cares. God cares. Look in verse eight. It says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? In the midst of his pain and turmoil, David knows that God sees. God knows. God cares. There are three lines here that I think work together, just beautiful imagery. The first he says there is that God kept count of his tossings. A better translation of that is that God kept count of his wanderings. That's how actually how most English Bibles translate that. God kept count of his wanderings. Actually, I wish it was tossings because you get the image of, oh, I'm just tossing and turning all the time, which we all can relate to. Uh, but I think he, he's talking specifically about David's wanderings here. But regardless, he knows all your tossings as well. He knows when you toss and turn. He knows your sleepless nights. He knows all the tears you cry. He knows all the pain that you felt. He knows all of that. And that's what he's saying. He, he knows all of his wanderings. He knows all of his tossings. Every journey, every narrow escape, every moment of confusion, every time David's had to flee, God has seen it all. In the same way that he's numbered every hair on your head and knows every grain of sand, he is aware of every difficulty you have ever faced. He's kept count of those. And when you see that, both the keeping count, you see that multiple times in, in this verse, it's, 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 not, it's not just like this uh, kind of emotionless, Absent. Oh yeah, I, I, I've kept track of that. But it's no, he, he intimately knows and he cares. He's keeping track because he loves you and he knows you. And the second thing we see here is that God has put his tears in a bottle. Word there for bottle is, is the word for a skin, so a wine skin or a water skin, which would have been used in this day to hold liquid, obviously, that was precious and essential to life and vitality. God doesn't keep a literal bottle of tears as some sort of a strange trophy. But David knows that his tears are so precious to God. They're, they're akin to wine in a wineskin, like water in a, wine, in a water skin. God's got his tears bottled up because they're precious. They're valuable. He loves and cherishes. The third thing, are they not in your book? God has kept a, a record of all of his trials. They're all written down. Nothing has escaped his notice. He knows about them all. Church, you need this promise. I need this promise. He sees, he cares, he knows. You are precious to him. Don't wonder if God sees, if God knows, if God cares. Don't question in disbelief, but declare in faith. He has kept a record. Nothing escapes him. My tears are in a bottle. Preach that to yourself. Remind yourself of that truth. 
that nothing escapes him. One thing to note here that may be helpful, it's helpful for me, is that in times of intense fear or times of intense pain, your, your thoughts can just kind of run away. They can just kind of get away from you and, and, and just kind of run amok or, or run to bad places. And I think word pictures can be very helpful. Word pictures can be very, I often have heard my, my wife again use this in the, the course of counseling, encouraging people to have a word picture because your, your thoughts are going to run to a picture of their own and are going to give you a picture of the bad and the worst case. And all, you're, you're going to, we go there and our thoughts can get away from us. But if we have something tangible, a picture, might be Psalm 91 of a mother hen protecting her chicks. And you just think of that word picture. And think of God's goodness and his love and his care. It might be Exodus chapter 33 and God hiding Moses in the cleft of a rock and knowing that God can protect. He is the solid rock. It might be John chapter 10, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. And you just have that mental image of of a good shepherd caring for his flock. And your mind goes there with a tangible, solid picture of who God is and what he's like in the moments when you're tempted to let your thoughts run. Or maybe it's Psalm 56, and you picture a wineskin with your precious tears filling it because God's seen everyone as it's run down your cheek. He knows everyone, and you remember that, and you cling to that. Have a picture in your mind of your compassionate, connected, aware, loving Father. So that when your mind runs, your mind will picture all the things that could happen or the things that have happened. Replace those with images to help you trust the good character of God. He's not always going to change our circumstances. He he may. He does. He won't always. He'll allow us to walk through hard things, sometimes for longer than what we'd like. But he's a compassionate father. Jesus is a good shepherd. And friends, just even as I've, I've given you that encouragement, let me just kind of a, a, a side encouragement for us as a church. We want to be a church that counsels one another well. And I hope you see from Psalm 56, as well as the rest of the Psalms that we'll go through this summer, that, that these are great places. If you have a friend who's coming to you overcome with fear, overcome with anxiety, where are you going to go? I just kind of a pat on the head, like, hey, <laughs> hope you'll be all right. But, but, but here, what, what are you dealing with? What are you afraid of? Kind of what's called, like get in, dig, ask questions, and say, hey, let, let's, read, let's read a psalm together. Let's try to find ourselves in this, and then pray together. This is what we want. The, the, the pastors aren't the professionals that everybody comes to do with their problems. Right? That happens. We're, happy. We're, we're here to meet with people and talk to people. But what we want, and, and we see this, this is one of those excel still more types of encouragement because we're a church that desires this, but a church that does this with each other, takes each other to God's word. In the front of my Bible, where I have that little concordance thing. I have a little concordance. You know, mine says what the Bible says about all these different areas. It didn't have one on counseling, so I wrote counseling, and I've just got passages there that whenever I'm you know, meeting with somebody or uh, hanging out with a guy and we're talking through things, that I can go and, and just have a catalog of those. That's just an encouragement for you to do that as we desire to counsel one another as a church. When fear keeps tormenting church, you keep trusting. How? Know that God cares. Know that God cares. Number five, God brings relief 
God brings relief. Look at Psalm 56, verse 9. <clears throat> As after the, he says, you've kept count of my tossings. Put my tear in your bottle. They're not in your book. Verse 9, then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. What a great passage. Then my enemies will turn back. In the day that I call, this I know that God is for me. You see what happens here in this verse? As he calls out to God, God will bring relief. His enemies will turn back. He knows it. And when they turn back, in that moment, when those enemies turn back, he takes it as a tangible reminder that God is for him. Now, no, it's not the only way that he knows that God is for him. I think the rest of the psalm has established there's tons of ways in here that he knows that God is for him. But one of the ways that he knows that God is for him is that there's a respite every now and then. There is relief every now and then. Oh, church, this principle is so essential for us to grasp. And whatever your trials or pains and personal torments, moments of relief are messages from God. Living in a fallen world where sin reigns and the world, the flesh, and the, the devil assail us, don't allow the pains to be the billboard that you read. No, it's the moments of relief that are meant to guide us and direct us. Sometimes you're praying and praying and praying and there seems to be no relief. And then one time you pray and there's relief, sweet relief. The take home there isn't, God, why didn't you answer all the other ones? The answer is, there he is, there he is, there's that moment. In a fallen world, he can bring me relief. He can end the cycle. There is a cycle here that we see in the psalm, but that cycle can end. And God can bring us those moments of clarity. He can allow us to come up for breath. He allows those moments of restoration and life and vigor. That's what he does. That's who he is. And we're meant to take those as messages from him that he is good. He brings relief to us. And that leads to a similar refrain in verses 10 and 11. Very similar. You can look at verses 3 and 4 and then 10 and 11 and see how that's kind of a chorus that's built into the song. It's kind of a refrain that's built into the song. So in verses 10 and 11, he says, In God whose word I praise and the Lord whose word I praise, and God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Very similar with a couple different tweaks from what we saw earlier. One of the changes here in verse 10 is that he uses God's name, Yahweh, God's covenant name that he, uh, by which he revealed himself. Again, I think reiterating that this is the, the faithful covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he's talking about here. Not just some vague deity, but the real God that he calls out to and that gives him help. But I want you to see here in this psalm, just the way that it's written, that there's a cyclical nature, as I've already said, built into this psalm. I understand that to be intentional. Right, so if you, if you look at the psalm and just kind of stand back and kind of scan the whole thing with me again, verses 1 and 2, he, he's in pain and he's afraid. He describes in detail, all day long they attack me, right? You see that in detail in verses 1 and 2. But he trusts in God and then he has his great confidence in verses 3 and 4. And then 5 through 7, he's right back to describing the pain again. He's right back to describing all day long what they do to him. They're evil and their thoughts are forming and stirring up strife and they're lurking and all those kinds of things. And then once again, in verses 10 and 11, we see the same chorus of praise because he's trusting in a good, loving, all-knowing God that leads him back to that same place of praise. I think this psalm is cyclical, church, because that's life. <laughs> that's life. He doesn't call it the first time and then it's all over. 
He calls out the first time. He's in pain. God rescues him. He praises. There's more pain. And so he does it again. That's what we're all going to need to do. That's what we all continually do in our lives. Fear and anxiety and worry and pain and struggle won't just be a one-time thing. Hey, I prayed about it. Why is it still here? (laughs) Now, there are ebbs and flows and seasons with various struggles, which means there will always be fresh encounters where God turns the enemies back, which will also lead us back to the same refrain of praise and trust in him and allow that to carry us through the next season, wherever it comes and however intense it may be, knowing that he's going to be the same God who got us out of that and that he's still there and still good. And we continue to trust in him. When fear keeps tormenting, you keep trusting. How? Know that God brings relief. And take those moments of relief as messages from him that he's there and he knows and he sees. Pain won't be over forever. Not until Jesus comes back. Then it will be forever. But between now and then, we keep clinging to him, trusting him for the grace and the strength and the endurance by his spirit to walk through whatever we have in this life. Finally, number six, God delivers. God delivers. Last two verses here in our psalm, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Psalm 56 ends with David looking forward by faith to deliverance. He made vows to God that he will now fulfill because of the surety of God's deliverance. Now, I don't think this text instructs us to make hasty promises to God in the midst of our pain, right? God, if you get me out of this, I'll do this for you. If you only make this stop, then I promise to do this, right? As if we're in some sort of a bargaining situation with God. But we should commit to praising him for the deliverance that he will surely bring. And then praise him afresh when it comes. As the next line shows, we should commit to thanksgiving, right? So, so I will render thank offerings to you. We commit to thanksgiving because of the surety of the deliverance that God will bring. And that's what we see in verse 13. There's the verb tense there is called the, the future perfect. It, it's, it's future, but he sees it as already being done. Right? He speaks of the coming deliverance as if it's already happened. He says, you have delivered. That's why I'm going to go ahead and give my thank offerings. I'm going to go ahead and fulfill my vows. I'm going to go ahead and praise you. I'm going to go ahead and thank you. And he's doing that, speaking of the deliverance as if it's already happened. You have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. You're saving me for a purpose that I might walk before you in clarity and in light and in vitality. Because of who God is, deliverance is as good as done. Though he's still in a cave. (laughs) He's still in uncertain circumstances, but he knows that his ultimate deliverance will come from God. It's as good as done. Friends, this is the only way to live. Remember that famous passage about anxiety in the book of Philippians? In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says to the church at Philippi, he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? In your anxiety, call out to God, beseech him, and do it with thanksgiving. But you're saying, listen, I'm still anxious. Anxiety's not over yet. I'm still worried. I'm still afraid. And Paul says, give that to God and go ahead and do it with thanksgiving, why don't you? That's what David does. I'm in this pressure. I'm still in the cave. I'm going to do my thank offerings to God. Because of who he is and what his character is like, I know he's got this. I know whether changing my circumstances or giving me the grace and the mercy to endure through it, whatever it is, he's got this. And that's what Paul says to the church at Philippi. We can take our anxieties to him with thanksgiving. Why? Because you know he's good. And this is how Psalm 56 ends. With David in a cave in the midst of fear-inducing circumstances making thanksgiving offerings. Because our deliverance is sure. Church, Christ was the down payment for our ultimate release from pain and sorrow and tears and anxieties and worries and exhaustion and all these pains and pressures that we all know so well. That Jesus gave himself that we might die to sin. The power of sin is gone. The, the, the penalty of sin is gone. We still have the presence of it in this fallen world, but one day even that will be gone. And we know that's sure because Christ didn't just die, he rose again from the grave. That we might die to sin and that we might rise in newness of life and that we know that we have a sure hope of an, another resurrection. That we've, we've risen with him in this life by trusting him and believing in him. If you've done that, you've died with Christ and risen with him, you have new life, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But all of that is a promise of when that salvation is made full and final, when Christ returns for his bride and when we will experience that final resurrection to glory when all of this will be over. We cling to that, not, not in some escapist kind of mindset that, that we just want this, this world is all bad and we want it to be over, but we cling to this because we know he's made us for that. We were created for that world. We were created for that kingdom. We were citizens of that country. And we look there and we put our hope there and we say, come soon, Lord Jesus. When fear keeps tormenting, you keep trusting. How do you do it? Know that God delivers. I hope you see here in this psalm a, a picture of what we can do with our fears. Again, not this far off, man, I can't relate to that. That is so different than my life, though it is. <laughs> but seeing that and saying, man, if David can get through that because of a God who's gracious, a God who's trustworthy, a God who's just, a God who cares, a God who brings relief, and a God who delivers... But friends, you and I can make it through anything because God has shown us in Christ his grace, his trustworthiness, his justice, his love and care and knowledge, his being able to bring relief and deliverance to us. We know that even better than David did. Let's cling to that promise together. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help. We thank you for pictures like this in Scripture. I thank you that Scripture is honest. We thank you that your word is honest, that we don't just see these cleaned up pictures of these saints with halos, never struggling with anything, never being in pain, never being sad. 
But we have very real experiences and very real pictures here in your word of people who are just like us. People who struggle, people who are tired, people who are exhausted, people who worry, people who are afraid of stuff. But God, you've given us those pictures that we might see what it looks like to trust in a God who's good. We thank you ultimately for Christ and showing us what it looks like to to trust in you and to cling to you and, and giving us that promise of your grace and your mercy that we will have forevermore. God, I pray that every single person in this room, we're all here for a reason this morning. We all have various pains and various pressures and various trials and fears. God, would all of us recognize in your sovereignty, in your providence, you put us here in this room at this time for a reason. And if anybody in here does not know the security and the life and the hope of that relationship with you who knows and cares, God, would today be the day that we would turn and say, I am a sinner. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I find it in Christ who gave his life for me. God, would all of us have our confidence there. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.